With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 13, Maurice. In this episode, we broke down all 349 pages of Maurice Carpenter's trial testimony. A lot of it was expected, and a lot of it was infuriating for a lot of people. So it's generated a lot of questions, a lot of comments. So we're going to go ahead and get right into this week's Friday follow-up. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. All right, we're going to start things off with a voicemail. Hi, Bob. This is Jessica from Tennessee. I was calling in regards to the last episode. You mentioned that Maurice Carpenter said he didn't check or swab the blood found on the safe handle. And uh, that was because he assumed it would, be, would have been Sandy's blood. And I was confused about whether he actually said Sandy's blood in the trial transcript or whether he said Jim's blood because, as we seem to have found out, there was no cut or any kind of wound on Sandy that would have had her bleeding. So that was either another oversight by him or perhaps maybe a mistake in the trial transcript and I'm wondering whether Max Seacrest followed up with that question, which I would have asked, well, was Sandy bleeding when um, she was found at the crime scene? So uh, that was my question. Just wondered if you would clear that up for us. 
Thank you for all your hard work and bye-bye. Okay, that's actually a really good question because I was kind of stunned by that part of the transcript as well for a couple of reasons. First of all, because yeah, as I mentioned, it's it's infuriating that he would have said in front of the jury, had I swabbed that, that it would have been Sandy Melgar's. Now, with that being said, it does seem terribly out of context, and Mac's reaction to it isn't exactly what I would expect. I would have expected the same type of outrage that Jessica's talking about here um, and making sure he's calling out in front of the jury. Did she have any cuts on her or anything like that to try to undo what he just said? Mac doesn't really do that. All I have to go on, I've actually reached out to the court reporter to see if we can get audio and haven't heard back. I think that uh, the Seacrest had also reached out to her at some point for a different issue. And I think they said that, if I'm remembering correctly, that they don't save that audio. So I don't know how we can figure out if that's not what was said. So all we have to go on is what the transcript says. And that's what the transcript says Maurice Carpenter stated under oath that day, that it would likely be or it, it would have been Sandra Melgar's blood. But again, with that being said, I wonder if it isn't a mistake. The weird part is that he said it two or three times, at least twice, I know, because he repeated it, uh, that it was Sandra Melgar's uh, and not Jim Melgar's. But I do have to wonder, did he actually say Jim Melgar's? Now, that's still infuriating. You don't get to make assumptions like that when you're doing a crime scene investigation. But at the same time, it's a little bit less because it makes at least some logical sense that it could have been Jim's blood. So I don't know. It could have been a mistake in the transcript. He could have just misspoke or Mac may have misunderstood him. I don't know. Again, all we have to go on is the transcript, but it does seem that the reaction to it doesn't fit uh, with what Maurice Carpenter said that it would be Sandy's. And the answer to the other part of the question is, uh, it wasn't really a question. I think it was another question someone else had asked in a different place, which was, did Sandy have any cuts that were bleeding? Was there any other blood of hers found on the crime scene? And the answer to that is no. Uh, the only wound she had on her that could have resulted in some blood loss is the scratch that was on her thumb. Um, but that that was, number one, small and not deep. And also it, it looks, I mean, it's scabbed over. It looks to me like it's older. I'm not a doctor. That could be, It could be fresh. I don't know. But to, to me looking at it, it looks like an older, uh, it almost looks like a paper cut or something like that on on her thumb. Uh, certainly not enough to create the kind of blood that was on the safe. So I don't know if it was a mistake, uh, but certainly it, there's no logical reasoning whatsoever for anyone to assume that that was Sandra Melgar's blood. And there's no excuse, in my opinion, for any crime scene investigators to assume anything like that, even if it was a possibility. Hey, while we're talking about Sandy, do you want to address the listeners on what's going on with her move? Yes. So I'm going to chalk this up to another win for the Truth and Justice Army. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you guys to get involved in a letter writing campaign to get Sandy moved into the medical unit uh, within TDCJ where she can get the proper medications and the care she needs to treat her issues that she has, you know, her, with her lupus and her epilepsy and the arthritis, all of that. That's something that Sandy's attorneys had had written some letters about already. And it was a combination of Liz and listener Jen and I think several other people that put together the Free Sandy Melgar Facebook page. And they're the ones that organized all this. And then uh, we promoted here on the show. We had lots of people write letters. I had lots of people a couple of weeks ago write to me and email me and send me screenshots of responses they got from the governor's office and from TDCJ. And we found out last week that Sandy was moved to a transfer facility. 
and then ultimately ended up in the medical unit, which is exactly where we were trying to get her. Uh, and it seems as though the letter writing campaign had a huge impact on that. We know for a fact, based on letters we got from several listeners, that the governor's office themselves got involved in this on Sandy's behalf, and she was moved to where she is now, which is right where she needs to be. Again, whether you believe Sandy's innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. She still should be treated like a human being and have her medical issues treated the way that they need to be. And so it seems that we've accomplished that. And actually, we have accomplished that. We don't know if it's going to be permanent. I think she's still being evaluated. But for right now, we can chalk that one up to a win. So thank you, everyone who participated in the letter writing campaign. It did make an impact and it did work. Okay, and now we'll move on to questions. The first one comes from listener Grace. She says, was Sandra ever offered a plea deal? You know, I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't believe so, but I, I, I can't give you a good answer about that. We were hoping to have Liz Rose on the show today to answer some of the questions like that because she would know better than us. Uh, but for those of you that don't know, Liz was actually hospitalized last week. She was for an entire week she spent in the hospital. She is home now, and she's doing much better. And also, thank you to all of you. There was uh, She got a, some flowers from a dress from the Truth and Justice Army delivered to her hospital room. And that was really sweet of all of you, whoever was involved in that. Uh, but she is home. She's doing well. She was planning on, on coming on today to help answer some of these questions, but she just wasn't feeling quite up to it yet. Uh, this morning after her first day home. So next week, she should be able to answer some of those questions. As of right now, I don't know if Sandy was ever offered a plea deal. All right. And Chris says, was the dry cleaning bag that was located somewhat between and around Jim's legs ever analyzed to determine if there was any potential knife cuts? He says, I'm curious if the plastic somehow created a shield between Jim and his attacker, even if momentarily and may contribute to the attacker having less blood on his or her person than one would expect, and resulted in no obvious blood trail leaving the bedroom and house. If that was done, it was never documented, uh, at least not in the documents that we have. I don't even think that... Well, we'll find out on Sunday. Sunday, we're covering the forensics. Uh, it's an episode I know a lot of you have been waiting for. Uh, we're working on writing it and researching right now. So uh, we should have the answer to that. But I, I've been through most of the forensic files, and I don't think that that plastic bag was even collected, much less processed. Okay, and Bob, we got a lot of questions this week about the safe in the closet. Let's go over a couple of those. First, Jennifer wants to know, was the safe unlocked? And Lara adds to that, was anything missing from it? Unfortunately, again, those are questions that Liz could answer for us, and she's not here. So we'll circle back to that next week. I don't know. Uh, my understanding was that, no, it wasn't unlocked, definitely not by the the investigators. Morris Carpenter didn't, I believe, he even testified. Don't quote me on this, but you can read the transcript yourself. But I'm pretty sure he said he never did open it uh, because Mac went into a sequence of questions with him about, did you open it? Did you lift it? Do you know how heavy it was? Do you even know if it was bolted to the floor? And Carpenter hadn't done any of those things. Uh, the family, I'm I'm sure, I, I believe, I remember Liz telling me they did open it later, and I don't I don't recall anything being missing from inside the safe. No, but I I can't answer that accurately. We'll have to get that from either Liz or Sandy. And right now, Sandy, we're hoping that we're going to be able to talk to her now, and you might actually be able to hear from her on the show now that she's in a quieter place. But her phones aren't working yet, uh, so she's not able to call. But uh, we'll find out. Hopefully, even with her soft spoken voice, uh, hopefully the medical unit is a little quieter place, and we'll be able to hear. Her. Listener Kathy asks, why didn't Sandra's defense team have the safe tested for DNA? You know, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I, I do know that, at least from the family's perspective, everyone thought that the safe had been processed by the police. They just assumed it had. Now, but the lawyers would have had access to the forensic reports, so 
they would know better that it that it hadn't. Uh, but remember that Sean Carlsall did go back um, after the family asked them to to process the safe, and he took some photos of the blood, uh, what the family thought could have been a fingerprint. So maybe they assumed it had been done. But again, that doesn't really explain the lawyers because they had the paperwork. But I, I do know as far as the family, they found out that nothing was ever done with the safe at trial is when they figured that out. They assumed that the police, I mean, it's they couldn't imagine that they wouldn't process an item of value a couple of feet away from the victim in a crime scene. And then Lauren wants to know, is that safe available for DNA or fingerprinting today? It is available. The family wrapped it in a plastic bag and stored it to keep it secured. However, it, it would be a big issue doing it now. You know, say we say they swabbed it now and they found the DNA of a convicted home invader that maybe was arrested six months later. Just just as an example, the prosecutor could attack that because there's no official chain of custody on the safe. You know, they could say that was added another time. There's there's a million arguments they can make. That safe should have been taken and processed and maintained in the chain of custody by the sheriff's department. It definitely would get tricky given the fact that it's been maintained by the family for all these years. Listener Aaron says, is there any possibility of Maurice's shoddy detective work coming back on him? And to that, Sarah adds, has Maurice's, quote, work been questioned in any other cases? There isn't any chance of any of this coming back on him as far as what we've identified. Carpenter, in my view, didn't do anything nefarious to the point of, you know, something that he could be prosecuted for, anything like that. But in my opinion, what he did on that crime scene is towing the line in between incompetence and intentional misconduct. Carpenter didn't go plant evidence or anything crazy like that. You know, that that would be way over into the corrupt category, misconduct, get prosecuted for. But I also don't believe that he just made honest mistakes. And again, I want to make clear, this is just my opinion. Other people, if you go on the fan page, you see there are, there are people there that disagree with me. But I don't believe they're honest mistakes. And the reason that I say that is because they're too consistent. And for those of you that aren't aware, if you're new this season and don't know my background, I was a firefighter for 15 years, an arson investigator for a lot of those. I have investigated lots of scenes and crime scenes, and I have written hundreds of investigative reports, crime scene reports, just like what Maurice Carpenter did here. Different, obviously, when it's a fire, uh, but it's the same process of, in an unbiased and objective way, gathering and documenting everything on the scene, letting the evidence speak for itself. And so I, I have a lot of experience looking at these types of reports and writing them. And what I can see when I'm reading it compared to my own experience, I see consistent things that were left out of the report. There's every single detail put into anything that could indicate that Sandy did this, and then details that could indicate that there was a home invasion or a burglary are left out. You know, the the back door, he goes at trial, he explains, why did you take all those pictures of the front door and the jam, and he explains that you need to see the jam and look for tool marks. It's the only way to tell if there's been forced entry. And then they go to the back door, and nothing doesn't doesn't say anything about the jam. Didn't take any pictures of the jam. The door in from the garage. Now, this is the only known obvious point of entry or egress would be the garage because the garage door was wide open. Doesn't even check to see if two things: if the door was locked, first of all, second of all, if the door was even capable of being locked. Now, if it was locked, that's a little shaky area because we know that that Herman Melgar walked through it. So it obviously was unlocked at some point by him. Uh, but the same was true of the front door. And they, he still processed that one. 
but he didn't even check the lock to see if there was any damage or if it operated properly or if it worked. The space in the entertainment center with an HDMI cable hanging out. Now, I'm not expecting him to say there was an item stolen from there or missing from there, but what I do expect him to say is there was an HDMI cord hanging out of place from the entertainment center in an open space there. Uh, Same thing about jewelry on the floor. There's just one thing after another. Everything that we've identified that he's left out of his report is anything that could support a narrative or a theory that there were, in fact, home invaders. And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, that is intentional. That's not a mistake. It doesn't reconcile with the way he he did his investigation and his documentation of other elements of the crime scene. Other things that were of, of no importance whatsoever that he documents thoroughly because they could lead to a theory of Sandy doing this herself. So it's kind of in between that, that area. It's it's right down the middle to where, no, I don't think it's nothing he's going to be prosecuted for. If he was going to lose his job for it, it would have happened a long time ago. Th- that's something maybe maybe the prosecution lost the trial after spending all the time and money they spent to try Sandy. And then they lose the trial because of his incompetence or perceived incompetence. That's something that maybe could cost him his job. But because of the fact that they got their conviction based almost solely on his CSI report, because there was no other evidence, the state didn't call a DNA expert. The state didn't even put the lead investigator on the stand. So so we're, we're, we're really primarily basing all this off of his investigation. They got a conviction. Nothing's going to come back on him. As far as the second part of the question, has he ever had any issues with any other cases? I don't know yet. Uh, that's one of the things that I'm going to be doing is putting in a request for his T. Cole's report, which will show if there's ever been any disciplinary actions or anything like that against him for any other cases. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. James says, is there a possibility Barnett would come back on the show and have a civil discussion about the evidence? That's up to Colleen Barnett. I mean, obviously, I was I was pretty hard on her in this episode, and I'm not going to apologize for that. I stand by it. I think that what she has been doing since this trial was over is reprehensible, and, and meaning she's taken every opportunity to promote this PR campaign about this case. I mean, we're talking Dateline NBC has an audience of, I don't know, five to seven million people, and she goes on there, on there and is putting forth information that's not accurate. And then the Deadly Women episode on Discovery ID, again, she's out there telling the story of uh, that she's heard these rumors that the Melgars were in marriage counseling, but the family, friends, church members, and church elders, who the rumor says that's who they were going to marriage counseling with, have all denied that ever happened. They have no idea where this rumor ever came from. 
even if it's a rumor that she did, in fact, hear, it is completely irresponsible to report that to people where it gets spun into things like they did with the Deadly Women episode. That there's no, and she even said on, she called it third party hearsay on our show. But and then, you know, the, the red rope thing, there's no denying that. We played you the clip, to, you're not, so you're not taking my word for it. She said the red cord in the closet and the red rope match. They clearly do not, not even freaking close. And if anybody's talking about semantics with that, she mem- remember she added to that. So the killer must have got the red cord from the house. So she, it clearly wasn't a, a slip of the tongue. It was it was a line of thought that because they were the same, it must have came from the house when clearly for anybody that has looked at the photos on the website, they were not the same. So all that being said, getting back to what she's asking here, I would love to have Colleen come back on the show and have a discussion about the rest of the evidence. That's completely up to her. She has my number. She knows how to get a hold of me. They have my email address. There's a million ways she can get a hold of me. She wants to do that. The door is open. I would love to have a civil discussion about it. but. I'm curious. We'll see what happens next because she does lots and lots of interviews. Again, Dateline NBC. She just did an interview for uh, Grace White, who's a reporter down in Houston, who's do- done a really good piece on the Melgars just this week, like a 15-minute news news special about it, about this case. She interviewed for them. Uh, I believe uh, 2020 is working on an episode of their show on this case. She's interviewed with them, Deadly Women. Uh, but what I haven't seen happen yet is for her to be challenged by anyone and confronted with things that she's saying that just are not true. But I would love to have that discussion. She's welcome to come back on the show. But also, I've called her out on it, and I've, I've been pretty pretty rough on her, so I don't know if she'll want to or not. But that's completely up to her. Wendy says, what's the timeline of what happened with this case from the end of Sandy's interview to being charged with the crime? And then with decisions not to move forward with those charges until Colleen Barnett came along? How many in the district attorney's office passed over this case, and have they provided any of their legal reasoning for doing so? I don't think that any of them will provide legal reasoning for not doing so because, you know, as far as to to document that or officially say this is why I didn't try the case, because the case was eventually tried by their office, and it could undermine what was coming in the trial back then and even the appeals now if a previous prosecutor says, I didn't try it because of X, Y, and Z. The timeline was, I believe it was 19 months. So just over a year and a half after her interrogation, before the case was put before a grand jury and Sandy was indicted for the crime. So that's when she was actually charged for the crime was 19 months after the fact. And then a couple more years go by. It was five years or four and a half years, almost five years before the trial actually occurred. From what I've been told, and I haven't gone back to verify how many different elections there were during that time. Um, I would imagine maybe, I don't know if they're two-year terms or four-year terms, but I know there was some turnover. I've been told that there were three different prosecutors prior to Colleen Barnett that chose not to prosecute the case because there wasn't enough evidence there, but that a lot of that could be just inflection that people are putting on their reasoning. But for whatever reason, they chose not to prosecute the case until Colleen, as she said when she's on the show, she was looking for a case to try, and she took this case and tried it and won. Jen says you mentioned that both the showers and sink areas show no signs of recent use. Isn't it plausible that Sandy cleaned herself up, as well as the knife, in the tub, drained the dirty and bloody water, and then filled it with fresh water? To plausible, I would say no. To possible, yeah, I, I think it is possible that that happened. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, because I hadn't thought about if the water had been drained, because someone else had been asking on the fan page if it's possible that she washed off in the tub because we know 
that no one washed themselves up in the sinks or the showers. They were all tested for blood, and they were even tested. The showers were, were checked. There, was no, there wasn't even any water in them. They were completely dry, and there was hairs and dirt and things in there that they could tell that they hadn't been wiped down. That was including the sinks as well. So we can rule out that anyone cleaned up in the house there. My assertion is that if it was Sandy, she didn't clean up anywhere. Now, people have asked about the tub. I can't say it's impossible. Number one, there was not enough blood in the water for that to have happened. Both the Emmy and the blood spatter analyst both testified that the killer would have had a lot of blood on them, a lot of blood on them. And I'll, and I'll, I'll get to how they didn't track things through the house after in, in just a second here because I know that's coming up. But if, if someone were to, well, I guess I'll get to it right now. If someone were to do that and they're standing there in the in the closet and they've got blood all over them, if you're talking about an intruder that's going to leave the house, they grab a towel or they have an accomplice from the other room, toss them a towel or two, and they wipe themselves down with the towel. You know, So they wipe their face, wipe their arms. So now they still have some blood on them, actually probably quite a bit of blood on them, but it's not dripping off of them. And it's not anything that's visible in the dark. You know, they're, they're, they're not spattered with blood on their face, but they'll be in all the little nooks and crannies. There's still blood in your hair, uh, in the beds of your nails, your fingers, things like that. So then if you take those towels, wiping off just the bulk of the big parts of the blood, throw them in the tub, that's one thing. But if somebody were to put their body in that water and clean themselves off, then all of the blood that got on them is in the water. And there's, if you look at the photos of the water, you can see there's a little bit of a brownish tint to it. So clearly, and and we know there was some blood found on the the knife itself. So there's some blood in there, uh, probably from the towels, the shirt, and the knife, but it didn't stain the water a whole lot. I think that if somebody got in and completely cleaned themselves off in the tub, there would have been more. Now, this addition uh, with this theory is that if they drain the water out after and then refilled it, again, that's, I guess, possible, but it's not plausible. I, I can't, in my mind... Uh, and that doesn't mean it's incorrect, but for me, if you, if your goal is to clean yourself off and you're going to leave evidence behind and you're going to leave a tub full of water with blood in it, so you're not worried about leaving that kind of trace evidence, why wouldn't you just step into the shower that was right there and just wash off where you could have really thoroughly scrubbed yourself off and not been soaking in a tub full of your own bloody water? And then also she would have to do that without getting any blood anywhere on the tub. There's no blood on the tub anywhere like some anybody touched it with their hand or their hair or anything like that. There's no blood on the tub. So it's, again, possible under a certain set of circumstances it could have happened. I don't think that that is plausible. Stacy says, is there oversight on cases as in who polices the detectives and the CSIs on a crime scene? Yeah, there is. And, and that's us. That's our job. So, you know, the, the, the DA should really be kind of overseeing that type of thing. Of course, the sheriff is looking at how their their employees conduct their business and how they do their job. And then, you know, of course, you have courts above that. And, you know, in, in big picture things, you got the Department of Justice, the federal government that could oversee them. But the reality of it is the DOJ is not getting involved in anything unless it is something where there's a long pattern, usually has to do with um, like a pattern of racism, things like that. They're not investigating every little, you know, poorly done job with every police department in the country. But that's where we come in. We, as the people, not only us that are looking into these cases and checking these people's work and making sure they're doing their job the right way and calling them out. That's why 
you can be upset with me. Some of you are for the way that I've called out Carpenter and Barnett, but that needs to be done. In my opinion, how we go forward, how we make progress is if someone is going to, because remember, this took away Sandy Melgar's life. She is in prison for the next 27 years because of the investigation and because of the actions of the prosecutor. Now, if they just did their job well and that's the way things went down, you, you've never heard me attack the the Dallas County Prosecutor's Office in Jesse Eldridge's case now, uh, and even go back to, to Ed Eight's case with, with, with David Dobbs. I was on his ass, but when he decided that he was making a turn and he was going to help us right this wrong, he's got nothing but my support and respect for that. You know, we're still pissed off about the things that happened back then, but at least he's doing something about it. And he's not going out and speaking to all these people and telling them lies about the case. But we call them out on it. We hold them accountable in the court of public opinion for their work. And then we make the real difference and the real oversight comes in when it comes election time. Sarah says, is having all the results of your investigation broadcast to the public potentially damaging to Sandy's appeal? And then in parentheses, she writes, does it somehow help the prosecution to bolster their fake case in any way? No, we are. I'm sure most of you have been around for a long time know that um, we are very conscious of the legal actions that are going on. You know, that's why we've had to stop covering cases at certain points. That's why we've had to pause cases. When, when we start to get to a place where what we're doing is going to affect court proceedings, sometimes, you know, there's, as I always say, we're playing chess, not checkers here. So if, if the best thing for us to do is to back off so some things can be worked on and, and completed and brought to fruition, then that's what we do. But keep in mind, where we're at right now is we're only investigating. We're still on the crime scene itself, and, and then we'll investigate the investigation. It's when we get into alternative suspects and trying to actually solve the thing where we might hit a spot where we need to back off. Maybe uh, the de- you know defense investigators are working on a suspect and we don't want to go tip them off, things like that. Uh, so we'll back off on people like that. But right now, no, we're just and honestly, from my communications with Sandy's defense team, you know, I think what we're what we're doing is a help to them in the fact that when I'm broadcasting this stuff, all of you are engaging and there are theories and things that are coming out and things people are catching on the the fan page and the Facebook page and the the Twitter feed where people are catching things because we have so many eyes on this. Some of the things are things that the defense team hadn't found yet. And they're, they're actually helping them to develop a better case. And that's some of those things you might say, man, there was this great discussion on the fan page and Bob didn't bring it up on the show. Well, sometimes that's because, okay, this needs to go to the defense team and not something we want to talk about. We want to broadcast. So I guess the short answer is we're very conscious of how what we're doing impacts the case and anything that's going to happen in court. Um, so other than me misspeaking and, and mumble mouthing, Everything that we say is thought about and is said on purpose. It's time again to talk about that taboo topic, sexual performance issues. No one likes to talk about it, but it's more common than you think. And it happens to a wider range of men than you think. Did you know that over 25% of new ED cases are guys that are under 40 years old? And it's a condition that 40% of men by age 40 struggle with. But no guy wants to talk about this issue, whether it's with family or even a doctor. That's why they end up turning to weird solutions or do nothing, when they can turn instead to medicine and science. The solution to that problem is 4hims.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. 
Hims connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat ED. They offer well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions. These aren't snake oil pills or gas station countertop supplements. These are prescription solutions that are backed by science. With four Hims, there's no waiting room, there's no awkward in-person doctor visits, no lines. You can save hours by just going to fourhims.com. Answer a few quick questions and chat with a doctor for a confidential review, and then products are shipped directly to your door. So try him for a month today for just five bucks. We'll get you started for just five dollars while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Just go to fourhims.com slash rough ed. That's fourhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash rough ed. Fourhims.com slash rough ed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ruth says, have any Innocence Project type outfits shown interest in Sandy's case? No, and that's because her case is still in direct appeal. So the Innocence Project only works on cases once they're in habeas. And that's kind of a frustration, you know, and, and Allison Clayton, I've talked to her about the case and she's helped out with things where she could, but Sandy still has a very, very good defense team in the, in the Seacrest, Mac and Allison Seacrest, uh, that are working on a direct appeal. But these are two different issues. Direct appeal is very different from Innocence Project work that's done in habeas. You can't present new evidence in a direct appeal. You're only looking at the fairness of the trial and constitutional issues, whereas once we get to habeas, that's where the Innocence Projects come in. That's when you can bring in, here's new evidence that we've discovered that proves that this person is innocent or guilty. And you can file writs for exoneration based on actual innocence. But we're, we're not there yet. So no, the Innocence Projects aren't going to take this case until we get past the direct appeals if Sandy isn't granted an appeal on her conviction during direct. Keith says, Bob, can you please get one of the jurors on the show? That is the plan. As most of you know, I have already spoken to one of the jurors. He said maybe he would be on the show. He wasn't sure yet. He has interviewed in several other places, but there's 11 other jurors. And just based on some interactions I've had, I, I think there's a lot more to the story than just from this one individual. Not that, not that he's doing anything deceitful or anything like that, but just it's only one view of how things went out of 12. And I just recently learned that when the case first went back to deliberation, so this is after everyone sat through the whole trial and heard all the evidence, when they took the first vote of innocence or guilty, there were only five out of those 12 that were voting guilty. So somehow over the course of seven to eight hours, we had seven people convert over to a guilty vote. And I would really like to know how that process went down, because that's a pretty astounding uh, number to overcome. And as I said before, you know, the jury system, it's good and it's bad. It's fallible, in my opinion, in the way that Oftentimes what we see in these cases is it comes down to personality. Whoever has the strongest personality in the room, whoever is the most, I don't want to say domineering like a negative way, but you know the type A personality in the room who also happens to be very well-spoken and persuasive, uh, oftentimes can, can do just that and persuade the other, in this case, seven jurors 
over to a guilty verdict when after they had heard all the evidence, they thought not guilty. Now, that's part of the deliberation process. That's what it's for. But yet you still have to think about that's a hell of a process. Seven people were not prepared to vote guilty. And I think there was like three undecided and four who were in the not guilty camp. Their vote was not guilty. So those four people somehow over the course of those seven hours would split up over two days went from she's not guilty to she is guilty. And so I'm really hoping that we can get through to some of these jurors and hear how that process went and how that happened. So I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. Pamela says, I'm just curious how you'll be covering the trial going forward. Will you present the state's whole case, then switch to the defense, or will you switch back and forth? Also, at what time will you introduce the forensic evidence episode? All right, so first of all, the forensic episode is coming in two days. That'll be this Sunday's episode. Uh, as far as how we cover the trial, it's more topical for us. You know, our, our procedure is always to kind of get a view of the case, kind of get an overview from both sides. And episode one is kind of the the defense's version of events. And then we come back to what the prosecution says happened. This season, we had Colleen Barnett come on herself, the prosecutor, and give that version of events, as opposed to other seasons where we would go through like maybe opening and closing statements from the prosecutor to see what their their kind of thoughts were, which we will get to, by the way. Uh, but then we always go through the crime scene. The way we do this, our process is throw everything out and start over. If this was, in fact, a wrongful conviction, something went wrong. And it's our job to identify what went wrong, where, and can it be corrected, and if so, how. And so we focus on the crime scene, the basic elements of the crime scene itself first. And then from there, we move on to the investigation, what went on during the investigation. Uh, and then we'll usually move into alternate suspects if it is, in fact, a wrongful conviction, which, again, I've stated before, I 100% believe at this point this was, in fact, a wrongful conviction. Not that my mind can't be changed later, but that's what I see in the evidence right now. Uh, so when we're going through trial transcripts, as an example, this week we're going to hear from a defense expert, their testimony. The reason for that is that we're covering forensics and DNA, and the state didn't call a DNA expert. But the defense did. So it's, you know, it's a week later into the trial when this guy testifies. But that's what's relevant to the topic we're covering right now. Danielle says, have you been given access to or watched the crime scene video that Carpenter shot? And will that be posted in the case documents? Yes, I have access to it. Well, probably because it's a big file. So it'll be published on YouTube is usually how we do videos. The only reason it hasn't been posted yet is because I haven't had time to mess with it, and I'm a little light on technical know-how when it comes to video editing. I'm getting better at it. But in the crime scene video, we have obviously unredacted video of Jim Melgar's body in the closet, his nude, stabbed-to-death body. So that has to be redacted out of there, you know, blurred, blocked. And so I just, when I have some time, I need to get into, I, I know I have a way to do it. It's, there's probably easier ways to do it, but it's a little clunky, and it's time-consuming the way that that I do it. So. I don't want to just, you know, the easy thing to do is just to cut that entire section out of the video. That would be super easy, but I don't really want to do that either. So we will get it. I'll, I'll warn you up front. It's not super exciting. It's not what you expect. I was expecting a flowing video through the whole thing so we can catch every little detail when, in fact, it's the video camera's turned on for 10 seconds and turned off, then on, then off, then on, then off, then on, then off. It's not much different than looking at the crime scene photos. There's no audio with it. So it's, but what is included in it, is the experiment the officers did 
where they use the uh, the chair to block the closet door using the pillow sham. So we will get it up, I promise. I just have to get the time to get to it. Hope says, have you seen the crime scene photo with a piece of rubber missing from the garage door lip? What do you make of that? Yeah, I've seen it, and it is maybe an indicator that someone forced that garage door up. But here's the problem. The, uh, the garage door was on an automatic opener. And it was in place. And, I, and for those of you that are familiar with with garage door openers, there's always a cord that you can pull that frees the door up where it can move freely without the opener going up and down. And that was still attached. So, I mean, it's it's if you're not familiar with them, it's kind of complicated. But for those of you that are, there's a tr- like a trolley on a track with a chain that moves the garage door back and forth. And then there's the piece that connects that trolley onto the door itself. And so that release disconnects those. So the door will open that was not disconnected, which means that the the trolley itself was back in the open position. Typically, you can't no matter how hard you force it, you can't force it back there. So had the garage door been forced open, it would have had to, I think, broken that connection between the arm that goes from the garage door to that trolley. It would have had to have broken that in order to move freely in that way. And then the trolley itself would have been still up at the front as though the door was closed. And that wasn't the case. So it looks to me that I did see the rip rubber. But to me, the evidence points to someone pushed the button and opened the garage door. Kimberly says, did the Melgars own the red rope found on Jim? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, No one from the family has identified that rope as coming from anywhere in the house. It does not match the red dress straps that were found in the other closet. Um, looks to me, I was trying to estimate the other day based on the size of the loop and trying to scale it against Jim's body. I think the rope's probably 10-ish feet long, maybe a little bit longer. But no, we don't know where it came from. Nobody from the family has said, yes, that belonged here in the house. So we just don't know. Fran wants to know, are any of the jurors from the trial listening to this podcast? Yes, I know for a fact that one is, in fact, listening. Trisha says, are there any limitations on law enforcement regarding questioning people with disabilities or illnesses like Sandy's? No, not really. I mean, there's and that's such a a gray area that gets litigated over all the time, especially when it comes to false confessions. There is some Supreme Court case law that is used when it comes to someone with a diminished mental capacity. So somebody like uh, Jesse Miss Kelly or Brendan Dassey from the Making a Murderer case. As far as you know, manipulative tactics uses somebody with a, an IQ to, that's at a certain level, um, someone that is deemed to be very suggestible, basically mentally limited uh, or cognitively limited. But in Sandy's case, no. Sandy is a very smart woman uh, and very capable. Her disabilities are mostly physical, other than you know the the lupus, memory fog, and the and the seizures and things like that could affect her memory, but no, that, it, that's too specific of a case for there to be any kind of law that says, you know, you can't question somebody who has diagnosed epilepsy or anything like that. Darlene wants to know, has Sandra seen the crime scene photos? And have you asked her about the pillow on the floor by the office? Also, has she confirmed that items were missing from the home? Sandy, my understanding is the first time she's seen the crime scene photos was at trial. And actually, I wanted to correct something there too. Somebody pointed out to me, uh, something that I that I misspoke on the episode when I was reading the exchange where uh, Barnett asked if we should take a break because the defendant was crying. And Max said, well, of course, that's her dead husband up there. And Colleen said that she did. And he said she didn't do shit. During that segment, I said it was the first time Sandy had seen Jim's body. 
Obviously, all of you know, you've heard the story from me that she saw him that night and she checked his pulse. She had seen his body. I wanted to make clear that what I meant was, it was because it was a misspeak. What I meant was the first time that she'd seen photos of his body and, and definitely the first time she's seen it in five years since the murder actually occurred. But anyway, on that regard, uh, it's my understanding that as far, as far as all the crime scene photos, she hadn't seen any of them until trial. Um, I'm sure there were some uh, that she was showing things like things like the pillow and things like that. But I was told that she hadn't seen anything as far as Jim's body or anything like that during that time. As far as the pillow goes, I wish Liz was with us today because I know that Liz asked her and I know that we didn't have a conclusion, but I don't remember the specifics of that. I think she said that uh, she thought maybe it came off of uh, the love seat, the two seater couch in the living room. But nobody has any explanation as to why it's laying in that spot. I do recall Liz pointing out, and it was just last night, and I haven't had a chance to go back to the crime scene photos to look. So some of you might want to go look and, and see if you see what she's seeing. Um, I think she said that couch looks like it's kind of askew, like it's, it's shifted. It's not where it's supposed to be. And she was thinking maybe, you know, during a struggle, somebody hit the couch or there was a struggle that kind of went across or on that couch. Maybe that's how the pillow got off. And maybe that's why the couch has turned a little bit. I need to go back to the crime scene photos and see if that's accurate. But, uh, that's something you guys can do. We go through the crime scene photos, look at the couch, see if you think maybe it looks like it's been hit or moved. And also, why we're on the topic of things like that, I just it just popped into my head. Listener Don McElhaney, again, noticed a detail um, where he was questioning where uh, Colleen Barnett had asked Maurice Carpenter on the stand if there was anything in, quote, disarray with the, the china cabinet. And was it open or anything like that? Uh, and that was in the dining room where all the fine china is. And Carpenter said, no, it wasn't. Don noticed that if you look at the crime scene photo of that China hutch or whatever you call that, that the door to that hutch is, in fact, open. It's only opened about an inch, but it is open. So whether that's significant or not, it's it's just another catch that none of us had seen before. Jennifer says, any chance Bob will get to visit Sandra in the near future? Uh, I'm hoping so. Like I said, everything's kind of up in the air right now because she's been moved and you know nobody's really heard from her. So... But yeah, I believe I'm on her visitor list, and and next my next trip to Texas, I'm hoping to go see her and Jesse Eldridge while I'm down there. Liam says, are there any updates on your trip to the UK? Yes, as a matter of fact, just this morning, I got some updates on that, and I'm reading these messages as I'm telling you. I know that we just booked London. We have confirmed an event in London. Uh, it looks like it's going to be Thursday, December the 6th at 7.30 p.m., at the Tabernacle Notting Hill in London. So we will be in London Thursday, and I'll be getting these these flyers out uh, on social media. Uh, but for those of you near London, we should be there Thursday, the 6th of December. That has been confirmed. Uh, and also remember, on Sunday the 2nd, we're going to be in Newcastle. That one is also confirmed. And we have also confirmed for Tuesday, the 4th of December, in Edinburgh, so anybody up in Scotland that wants to go see us, that we should be there on Tuesday, the 4th of December. And we're working on a date for Wednesday, the 5th in Manchester. So that that one is not confirmed yet, but they're working on it. So it'll be Wednesday, the 5th in Manchester. What we have confirmed is we're going to be in Newcastle on the 2nd, Edinburgh on the 4th, and London on the 6th. So that should be pretty close to everything. I think that, like I said, they're trying to book us into... Manchester, that's the only one still up in the air. It doesn't say anything about Dublin. That was a possibility. I don't know if that's still going to happen or not, but we should have probably at least those four locations when we come to town here in just a few weeks. 
Okay, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Make sure you tune in on Sunday where we'll finally figure out what the forensics in this crime scene are telling us. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. I know Liz couldn't make it this week, but we... You know that? That's good. When did you figure it out? <laughs> just now. <laughs> she, we spent 45 minutes, 54 minutes. You just noticed that she wasn't here? <laughs> Where's Liz? Right. <laughs>